Let's turn to Romans 8. This will be the last message in Romans 8. It's been a long time. Romans 8. Verse 38. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor any, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So let's back up a little bit here. Obviously Paul writing to the Romans here, and we know they were facing persecution, they were going through sufferings. He tells them they're suffering, that it is going to end one day, that... All creation's groaning, waiting for that day to come. And we still have that, right? We still know that, that all of creation groans, waiting for the day, the consummation, when it's all done, the second coming of Christ. But he tells them even in that, even in their sufferings, even in their persecution, that they should know that God causes all things to work together for their good. So even their sufferings was there for their good. And then here we have them where he, he says it twice in this section here that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And it kind of echoes what the way the chapter started, remember? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you being in Christ Jesus, you have no condemnation. Remember I, t I brought out when I preached that message half a year ago that it meant not even one condemnation. So there, there was not even one condemnation, which I brought out. That was, it was, it's important that there's not even one condemnation because we know one condemnation is enough to condemn us to hell. One sin. If Christ paid for 99% of your sins and left you with 1%, you're going to hell. Christ paid for them all. And he left not even one condemnation for you. And now he ends the chapter. Now obviously there weren't chapter breaks and Paul isn't thinking I'm cutting this off right here. But, but it, it, it makes sense here that Paul, this chapter ends with Paul saying nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So I have three points. Uh, the first point here is what can separate us? The second point is what about our free will? And the third point is What's love got to do with this? <laughs> so the first point, what can separate us? Let us once again realize that this ties into what he previously said. These, these last two verses right here, though, though we love these verses, right? It ties into what he previously said. He's pretty much teaching the same thing as verse 35 where he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He's pretty much saying the same thing. But here he steps into the spiritual realm also. He had the physical, all, that's all he named right there was the physical realm in verse 35. But he steps into the spiritual here. But notice he says, we overwhelmingly conquer. Remember that was last week. We overwhelmingly conquer through him that loved us. For, is how, the, how it starts. For or because I am convinced or persuaded. I initially named this point Paul's persuasion. He was persuaded. He was convinced. The fact that they were being put to death all day long is what the text says. Yet overwhelmingly conquering. 
Paul uses to tie into this. In other words, he's saying it like this. Though you guys are dying and the physical world is coming against you, I am persuaded that nothing in all of creation, physical or spiritual, is going to separate you from the love of God. And because of that, you are more than conquerors. This was Paul's persuasion, or his confidence is what it says. He was convinced of it. We could say that he had a full assurance of faith that nothing could separate the Christian from the love of God. He could rest in that fact. He had no doubts about it. You couldn't convince him otherwise. We could say that he wasn't open-minded to the teaching that you could be separated from the love of God once you're in it. You know, our world, they tell us, we, they're always telling you to be open-minded. Don't open your mind to lies. Why wasn't Paul open? He didn't have an open mind in the fact that you could be separated from the love of God. There was no, he was convinced that you cannot be. He didn't entertain the thought that you could be. Why? Because it isn't true. And second, because he was totally convinced that he and those he was writing to we're safe and secure in Christ. Totally convinced. I am convinced. For I am persuaded. I am convinced of this. What was he persuaded of? That neither death nor life. In other words, nothing can separate you. Nothing. He went through tribulation or distress or, or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword in verse 35. Really, anything that the world can throw at you cannot separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus to anything in the spiritual world. To anything in creation. So in other words, anything that you see or don't see, yes, you may be going, as it says, going through death all the day long. And you can see this, right? You can see we're going through death all the day long. I can see this. But even those spiritual forces that you can't see, can't separate you. If there's ever an example of this, it's clearly Job, right? Job didn't see Satan destroying the things around him. He didn't physically see Satan come on up and doing these things. But he did see them being destroyed. He couldn't lay his eyes on Satan that was behind him. He went through everything the world could throw at him. Except for maybe persecution unto death. But he had a wife and friends who provided some not so encouraging words to him as he was going through those things, right? Yet in all of that, you didn't hear Job say, like those say, you, you, ever, you ever go preaching Christ to somebody and they say, well, I can't believe in God because my grandmother dies. Like, so you believe in Nothing. After all that Job had been through, Job sinned not, but worshipped God. He lost everything. Yet he sinned not and worshipped God, and double was restored to him. And he lived, after all that, he lived another 140 years and saw four generations of his people. Job knew he was secure in Christ. That's the only way you can go through that, right? You couldn't go through losing all that. Read the first chapter of Job. You couldn't go through losing all of that and rest in God and in His sovereignty unless you knew you were secure. Listen to Job. In Job 19.25, it says, 
Job says, and as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and my eyes, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. My heart faints within me. <laughs> is that not a confidence? Job knew, even going through tribulation, that none of us in here probably even faced the tribulation that he went through, that he would see his Redeemer in the end. He knew he was secure. This is how you can go through what Job went through and still worship God. You rest in the fact that nothing can separate you from God's love. And that it's in His love that whatever is coming against you. Through your persecution, through your sufferings, through tribulations, it comes from a loving hand of God. It did with Job. Actually, God said, Have you considered my servant Job? All of our trials come from the loving hand of our Father. He goes on here. He says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels... Now obviously, this isn't talking about just angels in heaven. This is talking about the fallen ones. Angels in heaven are ministering spirits. And they minister unto you and unto God. This is what we call demons. They cannot separate you from the love of God. And we kind of know this from the example of Job as well too, right? It was Satan and his angels that were coming against Job. Yet in all that they could do, Job was still safe and secure. Job had nothing to worry about when it comes to being in Christ. Death, nor life, nor angels could separate him, and he knew it. Just as you should, Christian. You should know this. Just as Paul is addressing these early Christians, they should have known this. His next thing he says is principalities. And it can be and is used for angels and demons as well, but I think in this case it means the magistrates are earthly rulers. Because he just mentioned angels or demons. So as angels, as angels, nor, nor, angels nor principalities. And he, he, like I said, I, I believe it means the magistrate or earthly rulers. So those spiritual principalities can't separate you, but neither can the physical ones. So if you stood before an earthly ruler, they cannot separate you from the love of God. Satan can't separate you, and neither can Nero. I don't think I need to expound much on, on things present or things to come. That means things that are happening now to you or things in the future, none of it shall separate you from the love of God. In verse 39, he goes on, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Nor height, this doesn't mean like being scared of heights. It doesn't mean that being in a plane can't separate you from the love of God. 
being, being high up. That's not what it means. This word is only used in one other place in Scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 10, 5, which we know this verse. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the, to the obedience of Christ. So it was the lofty thing. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So this is talking about lofty thoughts. Or in other words, prideful thoughts. So even prideful thoughts can't separate you from the love of God. And I'd argue that this is not simply the prideful thought of others is what it's talking about. I don't think it's only talking about the prideful thought of others. Because if you have a prideful thought about me, what, can, what does that mean? It means nothing. It's just a thought. It's in, your, it's in your head. It means nothing to me. Now obviously that thought can become action. And that action might hurt you. But thought in and of itself doesn't hurt you. But this is talking about our thoughts. I think it would also definitely entail our prideful thoughts, your prideful thoughts. Your own prideful thoughts can't separate you from the love of God. I know you're like, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't have prideful thoughts, right? Well, if you had that thought, that's the first one then. The fact that we still sin is proof positive we have prideful thoughts. Sin's root is pride. You know, you know, this is one of, this is my nose, but this is one of the problems we have in Christianity is that we're always attacking the sin, which is the fruit, which is still good, right? It's still good to, to, to attack this, the, 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 the fruit, but we not must attack the root, which is pride. It's our pride that brings out our sin. I could demonstrate this from scripture very clearly, but I, I just... For sake of time, let's do this. All your sins stem from the fact that you don't believe God at that said moment. You don't believe God. That's pride. You don't believe God will provide money, so you steal. You don't believe God will provide a spouse, so you fornicate. You don't believe God will provide the outcome you want if you're honest, so you lie. I can keep going, but you see that unbelief is pride. Thinking God is wrong and I'm right. That's what it is. God said he's going to provide for all of our needs. Believe him. But even when we don't, we have those prideful thoughts as Christians. Guess what? Not even that can separate you from the love of God. Those prideful thoughts, those sins that you've committed, they cannot separate you from the love of God. Why? Because Christ paid for all of it. Remember verse 1 of chapter 8. He paid for all of it, not even one condemnation. All your sin, all your pride, all your unbelief, gone. We should remember this on a daily basis, right? This should be our, our thought when we wake up in the morning. I have no sin. My sins are gone. That every single sin that I have done, will do, or even think about doing, is paid for by the one who never sinned. 
Let's move on in our text here. It says, nor depth, nor height, nor depth. Now this word means the deep sea or poverty. The Bible gives us a clear picture of this as well, right? The deep sea cannot separate us from the love of God. The person writing this was thrown into the deep sea. But there's another very clear picture in the Bible, right? Anybody know of a biblical figure that went through the deep sea? Jonah? And here's the thing. We often think about this. We think the whale was his condemnation. The whale was his salvation. The whale came and scooped him up out of the sea. He was in the deep sea, and God sent a whale to get him out of the deep sea. Even being tossed into the deep sea, God provided for him and demonstrated his love for him. Even in his disobedience. Remember, that's why he was in the deep sea, right? Because he was being disobedient. God said, go preach to the Ninevites. I'm going to save a whole bunch of them. He said, no. I hate the Ninevites. God, I'm going to save 400,000 of them. Nope, I ain't going. I hate them. And he gets tossed into the deep sea. And even in his disobedience, God saves him and still takes him to Nineveh. And he still preaches a message. And God still saved his people. But the greater picture of this is Christ. He went into the depths. He was the greater Jonah. Jonah was just a picture. Even though I believe it actually literally happened, it was only a picture that pointed to Christ who said he is greater than Jonah and he's going to spend three days in the belly of the earth. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. Christ spent three days in the belly of the earth. So he was in the depths. He went to the depths. But not only that, he gives us a picture of poverty as well. Remember, depth means the, 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 the deep sea or poverty. He gives us that picture too, does he not? Jesus had no home. He says the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He wasn't rich in earthly possessions. Could he have been? <laughs> no doubt he could have been. But he wasn't. He went into the depths. If his condensation... Condens I just slipped out of my head. Condescension from heaven to earth isn't the picture of leaving heavenly glory and coming down to poverty. He is the picture of that. Christ left heavenly glory to take on flesh and come down to the depths for his people. Even from his birth. His birth was lowly. Born in a feeding trough. He didn't have the nice hospitals that we have. He was born in a feeding trough. Because there's, there's no room for him at the end. To be born at the end. So he was born where the animals were feeding. How lowly is that? Through his life, how lowly was that? We had no place to lay his head. To what we call his triumphant 
entry into Jerusalem riding on the donkey showing how lowly he was to being hung on a tree as a curse between real criminals. The thieves on either side of them were guilty. They deserved what they got. Christ had no sin. Yet in, in, in his condescension came down and took upon him our sin and was hung upon a cross as a curse. That's what it says. Cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. This was all in the condescension to save his people from their sins. So now that he's done that for his people, shall anything separate us from the love of God? Absolutely not. Let's go on to the next point. What about our free will? As if Paul isn't super abundantly clear here in this portion that nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us. Some still say that you can lose your salvation. You ever notice the ones that say that are typically the ones that haven't lost their salvation though? They argue that you can lose your salvation but they're most certainly saved. They think they are saved, but argue that others have lost their salvation. I've never heard one person who believes that they could, that you can lose salvation, believe that they lost their salvation. They're always the safe and secure ones. But so and so, they're not saved anymore. So, in other words, it's like saying, I know that I'm saved because I've done enough, or I believed enough, or I'm good enough. But this other person, they aren't living up to the standard, therefore they're not saved. By the way, what's the standard? How do you know if you've lost your salvation or gained it back again? How many sins must I commit to lose my salvation? How long do I have to go in unbelief? What if I sinned yesterday and didn't realize it and have not repented? Have I lost it? What a horrible, anti-biblical stance. It's not just unbiblical, it's actually contrary and teaches the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us. If you didn't start your salvation, you don't end it. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. In our text it says, nor anything else in all creation, in other words, nothing in all creation can separate you. This sums up verses 35 and 38, right? When Paul gives us this huge list of things and he sums it up with nothing shall separate you. Nothing. Not even you, if you've been justified. This is actually why Paul says in the next chapter... So then it is not, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Salvation depends upon God, not on you and not on your will. From eternity past and election and predestination 
onto eternity future where we are glorified and everything in between that is dependent upon God. You get no credit for your salvation. You don't get to stand up there one day and say, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I made that choice. Oh, but this person, I wish they would have made this choice. It's all dependent upon God. And to quote the book of Jonah again, he says, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of Yahweh. And actually in the Hebrew is the name Jesus for salvation. Jesus is Yahweh. When one gives, when God gives one a heart of flesh, it does not turn back into a heart of stone. It's a heart of flesh. When he's giving you a heart of flesh, he doesn't get, later on you, you get a heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh again. When God raises one from the grave spiritually, we don't go back to the grave. When God gives one faith and repentance, they're called gifts. Ephesians 2, Philippians 1, 29. Gifts of faith and repentance. They are gifts. God gives us the gift of faith and repentance. You know what the scriptures say about God's gifts? They're irrevocable. If he's given it to you, it's yours. You believe and repent. When he gives you faith and repentance, you believe and you repent. And let me say this. And you love it. And you love him. There isn't one person who is a Christian who regrets it. We love being Christians. We love it. And we love Him. Your will was never free to begin with. You were a slave to sin. That's what man is, natural man is, slave to sin we all actually saw it in Romans 8 7 right there where it says the natural man cannot obey God, we see, we know from John 6 44, no man can come to Christ unless the father which sent me draws him we know Ephesians 2 1 where it says, and you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins that was your will, it was dead it was enslaved, it couldn't come to Christ it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that that we can't even understand spiritual things. The natural man cannot understand spiritual things. Dead, slave, cannot understand, cannot come to Christ. That was your will beforehand. But now you're a slave to righteousness. You went from a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. Or a slave to Christ, if you will. And I doubt anybody would argue that a slave means free. But wouldn't that just make us robots, Jeremy? I pray that all the time. That's not a good objection. I want to be God's robot. God, make me do what I'm supposed to do. Use me as a robot. I don't care if you call me a robot or not. I just want to do God's will. And that's what happens when God changes you from a pagan to a Christian. You want to do his will and say, oh, that, that make you a robot. So? That's what I want to be. It's nothing. We all desire to, to, to do God's will as Christians and nothing in all of creation. What is creation? Everything, right? 
Oh, but I can separate myself from the love of God. Nothing in all creation. Are you a cre creature? Most certainly. We're all creatures, and nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Includes you. Why? Because, as it says in Psalm 110, I think it is, where it says, Thy people will be willing in the day of thy power. God has made you willing. That sounded more southern, didn't it? Willing. God has made you willing. He's changed your will. Where you, where you don't follow after all these idols anymore. And he's changed your heart. He's given you a new heart where you desire to come to him. And you desire to learn from him. And you desire to obey him. And you don't desire to go back into the stinking grave that he brought you out of. What kind of insanity would that be? Just think of us physically. If you were dead and somebody come up and got you up out of the casket and breathed life into you and then you're alive and you're like, no, I want to go back into the casket. Spiritually, the same thing. We don't want to go back. I, I, like I said, there's not a Christian with regret. I guarantee any of you here that have been regenerated by the Lord Jesus Christ, if I ask you, would you want to go back to your old life, you say no. I don't want to go back there. That, it was, what does it say in Proverbs? There's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereof is death. Our old life, we're headed towards death. But now he's changed us. He's made us willing. And you willingly follow Christ and love it. And nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. So the last point here. What's love got to do with it? Somebody want to sing it? If there's ever a place in Scripture that tells us explicitly where the love of God is found, it's here. Verse 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says that the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. The love of God is found in Christ. That's what it says. Nowhere else in Scripture do we found, find God's love found anywhere else. You can't look to Scripture and find God's love found anywhere else but in Christ. This is the place it's found. If you desire the love of God, it's in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in the love of God. And nothing can separate you from it. If you think that sounds like God doesn't love those outside of Christ, that's exactly what it should sound like. He loves His Son and those in Him. His elect. Let's see another portion of Scripture that teaches this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 5. Hebrews 12, 5 says... And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, when you are illegitimate children and not sons. It says, God disciplines whom he loves. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. God Does God discipline everybody? Actually, verse 8 says no. He doesn't discipline everybody. He disciplines whom he loves. Who's he love? His sons and daughters that are in Christ. That's why the love of God which is in Christ, when you're in Christ, you're, you're a child of God, and therefore he disciplines you. If you're not in Christ, you get no discipline. Because he doesn't love you. But God's love, he has to love everybody who says. He disciplines his children whom he loves, and his children are those in Christ Jesus, adopted into the family of God. It's very similar with our children, right? I discipline my children. I don't so much discipline your guys' children. Actually, I've never disciplined your guys' children. Sometimes I'd like to. <laughs> but I don't discipline somebody else's children. I discipline my children. God disciplines his children. Whereas children, through adoption, through the blood of Christ. Those who are outside of Christ, the non-elect. I say this and y'all can... We can have this discussion, but nowhere in the Bible does it say God loves them. It says right there in Romans 8, 39, that the love of God is in Christ Jesus. So it actually says the opposite about those outside of Christ. Y'all know Matthew 7, right? We dealt with this when we looked at 4 New. That Jesus says to workers of iniquity, what does he tell them? I never knew you. Which meant he never loved them. I never loved you. I never had a loving relationship with you. It doesn't mean that I don't know who you are because Christ is omniscient. And that's judgment day. I never knew you to workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, 5, was it? We, we probably know this verse, right? It says, thou hates all workers of iniquity. God hates them. God's love is reserved for whom he desires to display it to. He doesn't have to love anybody. It's reserved for those whom he desires to display it to. And the one he desires to display it to are his elect, his vessels of mercy, as we'll see when we get there in Romans 9. And as I mentioned last week, this is where Paul goes. And it's to answer the question of the Jew who were supposedly in the love of God. But they really weren't. In Romans 9, he answers that argument that if God's people are really secure and in the love of God, why are the Jews now rejected? And that argument actually stems from those verses right there in Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we know that the Jews, early Jews, rejected Christ, right? They weren't in Christ. 
They rejected Him. Therefore, they were not in the love of God. If you're in the love of God, it's because you are in Christ. And the Jews rejected Christ. Therefore, it was displayed that they were not in the love of God. Let us not pervert the love of God in some fickle, changing love. That's unfortunate. That's, that's a message. That's what was brought up before service. That God's love changes somehow, right? That He loves them until that day that He cuts them off. And then all of a sudden something changes and He doesn't love them anymore. Or He's just loving them in hell. Let's not pervert the love of God in some fickle, changing love. Because His love is everlasting and eternal. Because it's who God is. He doesn't change. And the scriptures say God is love. His love doesn't change. So by extension, His love can never change. Because He can never change. He's immutable. His love is perfect and is displayed to those in Christ Jesus. Jesus purchased, purchased that love for you through His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And now you being in Christ are in the love of God because you're in Christ and God cannot not love His Son. You see, that's why God loves us. Because we're in His Son. And He loves His Son. And He cannot not love His Son. Therefore, He cannot not love you if you're in Christ. If you're in Him, you're safe, secure, and loved for all of eternity. So let's rest in that fact. And remember, like verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to you because you're in Christ and loved with an everlasting love and nothing in all creation, or we could say in all the universe, has the power to separate you from that love. He is the great author of our salvation. And He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. So rest in Him. He's not going anywhere and neither are you. Amen. Let's move on to our call to faith and repentance. To the unbeliever first. The ultimate reality to you here who doesn't know Christ is that the love of God is found in Christ and you're not in Him. You're not in the love of God. You who are outside of Christ are actually, as it says in John 3.36, under the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides upon you. And at any moment, God could cut you off from the land of the living and then He'd unleash His wrath upon you. It's not a fairy tale. Men and women in hell today wish they could come tell you. God says about the reprobate that they, they are set in slippery places. If you're outside of Christ, you're in a slippery place. Ready at any moment to slip off into eternity. Walking along through your life, ready to slip off into eternity. Yet you sit here today. Sitting under the ministry of God's Word. Sitting in the midst of God's people. Singing songs in God's name. 
And God is under no obligation to give you the rest of the day. God is not obliged to, to, to give you however many more hours are left today. He doesn't have to. He can cut you off right now and be just in doing so. So the call to you is repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for sin, rose from the grave, defeating death, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He's the one that you have to stand before on that day and be judged. Look to Him and be saved. And to the brethren here. If this section of Scripture teaches us anything, it should teach us that we can rest. You're secure in Christ. He has paid for all your sins. Even your unbelief. 2 Timothy 2 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. God doesn't cast His people to the side. He doesn't do away with them. If the Father has given you to the Son, and the Son has secured your salvation, nothing in all of creation will separate you, and you need to believe this. Even as a Calvinist. I know many of us will mouth that, right? Perseverance of the saints, we'll mouth it. But a lot of times we think practically like synergists. We'll say, yes, I agree with perseverance of the saints, but then... We'll think, am I really saved because of my sin? We say we can't lose our salvation, but then doubt that we're saved because of our sin. Sin didn't stop Christ from saving you, and it surely won't stop Him from keeping you. If you believe the gospel, you're saved. Period. That's the stipulations of the covenant, right? The new covenant, believe and be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you believe, you're saved and nothing can separate you. Nothing. And we need to believe that. We do need to, and we do, repent of our sins as well, though, right? It's not that just our sins are gone and therefore when we sin, it's no big deal. Is we still come in repentance. We still repent from that sin. And we still try not to do that. But that sin can't separate you. Believers repent often. Living in complete, unrepentant sin displays that you probably aren't a believer to begin with. If you never repent, you're probably not a believer. But I'm speaking to believers. Quit doubting. Don't look at your sin and think, well, I might not be a believer because of this sin today. Christ died for that sin. And repent of it. Let me give this little picture. Christ, like I said, is not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. And you're not going anywhere. But there's this picture I've been thinking about since I've been working on this message. A picture of an old couple with their old truck. You remember the old trucks that had the one seat? And they're driving down the road and they pass another old truck, same old truck, and it's got a young couple in there. 
And when the young couple passes up, the guy has his arm around the girl, and she's right here. And the wife, the old, older wife says, I remember when we used to be like that. And the husband says, I didn't move. That's kind of what we do, right? We move away and move away and move away. Instead of repenting and coming back to our first love. He ain't going anywhere. And he's going to keep you too. Let's move on to our call to war. The first part is I brought, brought this out last week. So if you weren't here, you have to go back and listen to it. But it's somewhat of the same call. Remember what I brought out last week. This is a picture of marriage. The separation that it talks about here, the word separate is the same word that's used for divorce. So the separation there is the idea of divorce. And in the text, it clearly teaches us that nothing in all of creation can divorce us from the love of God. And if Christ and his church is a picture of marriage, should not our marriages look like this? I mean, God has brought each one of us our spouse, and he has said that what he has brought together, let no man separate. Let no man divorce. If God has brought you together, let no man divorce. But what does that mean? It means you work for your marriage. Not simply, well, I guess we'll stay married, and we'll, so we'll just stay miserable. I heard that one. I guess we're just going to be miserable the rest of our lives because we can't divorce. That's not at all what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us get to work. Grind for your marriage. Work hard for your spouse. Forgive them when they sin against you. You, you see, this is a picture of Christ in his church and we see that. Forgive them when they sin against you and tell them that. Apologize when you're wrong. Step in and help when you see them struggling. That actually should come as a no-brainer, right? If I see my wife struggling, do you think for a second I would just sit there and watch it happen? No. <laughs> Not a chance. I desire to help. Does Christ not do this for us as well? Christ is a picture. Christ in his church is a picture of our marriage. It's what it's supposed to be. I mean, doesn't he intercede for us? Does he not stand in our place? Does he not continually display his love towards us? You're supposed to be doing the same to your spouse. Not sitting back idle. Not I'm busy doing my thing. That's their thing. It's together. We were brought together, not simply to procreate. I know a lot of people think that's what marriage is, just to come together to procreate. That's not what it is. But to display to the world the relationship between Christ and His church. 
That's what our marriages should look like. They should look like the relationship between Christ and his church. And when the world looks in and sees your marriage, they should say, that husband loves his wife more than anybody else on earth. That wife loves her husband more than anybody else on earth. And there's not a question. Is your marriage displaying that? If not, it's time to repent and change it. Not by being harsh and trying to change the other side, right? But by being loving and simply displaying love to the other side. I say the other side, which isn't really correct. Because you're one. There are no sides. There aren't two sides to marriage. It's not 50-50. There are no sides. You're one. But we're actually to practice, it says in 1 Peter 3, and it's talking about wives here, but it says, If any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by their behavior. So, the idea is start looking to Christ and how he treats his church and you start doing the same with your spouse. Now we say that command is mainly for husbands being the head, but wives can do the same, right? Looking to Christ and seeing how he treats his church and do that to your spouse. And for the single men and women, just so y'all ain't feel left out like I was only addressing married, married couple. Start preparing yourself for this. Start doing what this is, what the, it calls the husbands to do and the wives to do. Start acting like that. Start getting your mind prepared to that for when God does bring that person in. That's not so hard for you. And the last little point here and call to wars. If nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, you should have nothing to fear when obeying Him. Nothing to fear. This should mean that we can give more of everything to the kingdom and know that God has us. We can preach more. We can give more of our time and resources. We lay down our lives more for Him knowing that nothing will separate us from His love. And he, if He has given us His love, what more could He give us that we could want or need? We have everything now. To quote a modern hymn, which we're going to sing right after this, it says, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. If God gave you Jesus, what more could He give you? You have everything now in Christ. God has given you everything and nothing shall separate you from Him. This frees us up to serve Him without thought of preservation. By that I mean you could actually give everything you have to God and know that He will still take care of you. And I'm not telling you to do that necessarily. But you could give every single little thing that you have, every dollar that you have, everything that you own, everything you could give it to God and God will still take care of you. 
I'm not simply talking about money. No, no, I don't even like talking about money. If you know me. I'm talking about your life. Not, not simply your bank account, your whole life. Give him everything. That's what Paul did. That's what those early Christians were doing. This is why they said that we, we are counted, we, we, we are counted as, Good thing my Bible turns right to it. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For thy sake we are being put to death all the day long. They were being put to death. They gave everything. Paul gave everything. He was put to death. However, in our day of soft Christianity in America, we think an hour or two on Sundays is enough. I, gave them, I, gave, I went to church on Sunday for a couple hours. Spent a couple hours with God's people on Sunday. I threw a little bit of leftover money into the tray when it came around. I'm good, right? I call myself a Christian because I showed up for two hours on Sunday and threw some money into a plate. Because I sang some songs that I didn't even know what they meant. Have you, have you ever given until it hurt? Your, like Once again, not just money. Your time. Your resources. Given until it hurt. We ought to be there. That's where we ought to be as Christians. And it ought not hurt, but we should give to where it's uncomfortable, right? We should be spending more of our time with believers, talking to believers, giving our resources to believers, and for the advancement of, a ki of the kingdom until it hurts. This is why Paul says, we've, we know he says it a couple times, be not weary in well-doing. Why would he say, tell them that? Because they were weary. They were doing so much, they were weary. And he tells them, don't be weary in well-doing. They have worked themselves to be wearisome for the kingdom. But the fact is, we should be doing that. And knowing that even if I work so hard for the kingdom that I become weary, God will comfort me. He is there with me. He will not leave me or forsake me. Nothing can separate me from His love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So therefore, I will lay down this life that He has given me for Him, His glory, and the advancement of His kingdom. Amen.